Welcome to the Heart of a Man podcast. We are a movement of men in central Indiana pursuing meaningful friendships, faith, and character. Today's talk is from our founder, Bill Moore, on Philippians chapter 3. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope that you're inspired by the ideas. Well, hey, y'all. My name is Taylor Moore. I'm the president and co-founder of Heart of a Man. We're going to be doing things just a little bit differently this week for Lesson 4. The day before our Week 4 Bible study, a young man uh, tragically died in an industrial accident in one of the Packmore facilities, which is the company owned by our founder, Bill Moore. And as you can imagine, that for Bill was an overwhelming pain to bear, and so he took some time away to grieve instead. So here we are at the end of the week, and Bill is going to still give that lesson here in the studio. So without any further wait, here is the Heart of a Man lesson on Philippians chapter 3. Well, guys, welcome to the uh, next lesson in this Philippians study. We're in Philippians chapter 3, and uh, it's good to connect again. I hope you'll enjoy this lesson as much as I did. Uh, In 1955, a young man named Jim Jones started a church here in in Indianapolis called the People's Temple. At that time, he was working on the cutting edge of racial reconciliation. He moved the church to California in the 60s and later moved it to Guyana, South America. On November 18, 1978, over 900 members, 90% of his congregation, died at what was called a mass suicide. Jim Jones convinced the people of Jonestown that they would be better off dying on their own accord than letting the American government kill them. He used the Bible as the primary means to control their minds and their decisions. Fear and deception coupled with false teaching were at the core of this brutal event. This was the largest loss of civilian lives in American history prior to uh, September 9-11. This story is extremely sad and in a very dramatic way shows that misapplying God's truths can cause serious problems for believers. Tonight, Paul gives two warnings about misapplying God's truths that have dreadful consequences. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, Paul warns of blindly following the Christian culture. In verses 12 through 21, Paul warns of living a carefree, reckless life. So I hope you'll join me now as we jump into Philippians chapter 3 and study what Paul's trying to warn us about. I'm going to start by reading the chapters for you, uh, reading these verses for you. They're powerful verses. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again and again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic, righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. So in these verses, we see right away Jewish Christians called Judaizers 
were trying to convince the Gentile Christians they must be circumcised like a Jew as part of their conversion to following Jesus. The Jewish Christians who were holding this view were strongly convinced their ability to keep the Jewish laws made them right with God. And this was not totally unfounded. In Genesis 17, God had commanded all the Jews to circumcise their sons on the eighth day as a sign of their covenant with him. Paul's expressing frustration and significant opposition because he worked with the Christian leaders in Jerusalem, agreeing that Christ's death was the new circumcision. The old covenant had been replaced. The blood of Jesus is what makes men right with God, not circumcision. And if you read in chapter 15 in the Acts of the Apostles, you'll see there was a lengthy debate with these new Christian leaders about circumcision. They agreed that circumcision was not required for Gentile believers to become Christian. And then Paul goes on to argue that his Jewish pedigree, coupled with his dramatic conversion and work in following Jesus, gave him the credibility to stand against faith in any human effort. In fact, Paul calls faith in his Jewish accomplishments total rubbish compared to the righteousness obtained through his faith alone in Jesus. He strongly opposes circumcision because it diminishes the work of Jesus and allows faith in our own works to be part of our salvation. Jesus' death, his resurrection, and the sending of the Holy Spirit is what prepares the heart of man to be obedient to God. It's not circumcision or any human effort or work. And that's Paul's point. So the question is, how do we apply that to our life today? We must ask, what Christian rituals or modern religious constructs cause us to believe we're right with God? What are those? What can the American unbeliever mistake as faith in God that is wrapped in a Christian culture but has no ability to save anyone. Christian behaviors often viewed as the signs of a person committed to Jesus are vast. There's a bunch, I'll give you a few. Church attendance, church membership, baptism, communion, small group membership, lack of sinful behavior like cussing, confession, praying the rosary, fasting, tithing, personal prayer, Bible study, worship, speaking in tongues, mission work, caring for the poor, working in prisons, caring for orphans, praying over meals, and an intellectual pursuit of Christian knowledge. All incredibly value in the faith walk. All prescribed in the Bible as something we should do. Yet, often you can find people doing these things, these exact activities who've never, ever placed their faith in Jesus Christ. You can do all of these things yet not have a trusting, saving faith in Jesus Christ. And the unbeliever amongst you is almost indistinguishable from the believer because they can act according to these cultural behaviors and you won't know the difference. Paul says in Romans 10, if I confess with my mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in my heart he was resurrected from the dead, I will be saved. So how do you know you aren't just part of the Christian culture, but you're actually saved? And this is what Paul's fear is, is these Judaizers are pressing in. Circumcision's gotta be there. You gotta circumcise. They gotta be doing the things that the Jewish Christians did. And that's what our culture, our Christian culture does too. If you do the things, then we know you're saved. Is that really true? I know for me, I read the Bible over the course of 15 years 
And over time, the desires of my heart changed. And I did want people to know the Lord. And I started to see a difference, but I didn't start that place. I didn't start right out of the gate having this passion for seeing the lost be saved or caring anything about the lost or even knowing why the resurrection mattered or why it was important to me or if I really believed it. I didn't know that stuff. It took time for me to read the scriptures and study and understand and really own those truths. And then I found over time something in my heart changed and God did that. He changed my heart. My heart became different and my desires changed dramatically. Where we start to see a difference is where people live and where they work. It's where we are in our daily life and work. The true believer starts to take risk in loss of comfort and alienation by sharing Jesus to people in those places. They start to take a gamble and they confess Jesus as Lord in places where they would never do it before. And the heart of the true believer will match the heart of Jesus. And it breaks Jesus' heart to see the lost and it starts to break the heart of a true believer to see someone lost. We've gotta be very careful to not let our Christian culture convince us and others we have achieved a right standing with God. God can see our heart. A heart obedient to Jesus alone is the only source of a right standing with God. So what Christian activities do you pursue that may be hiding an unrepentant cultural relationship with Jesus? How might your dedication to your Christian routine keep you from reaching people who don't know Jesus or cause them to just simply want to stay away. This is the challenge Paul is talking about. It's not circumcision, but it's all the other religious activity. It's exactly the same thing he's talking about. This is the application for us. And then he switches gears. He moves into verses 12 through 21, where the reader and the Jewish believer at this time might be hearing Paul as he's they're reading this letter and saying, oh, he's saying we don't have to follow the law. The law isn't needed anymore. He's thrown out the law. And Paul's saying, no, it's not what I did. I'm telling you that circumcision is not needed. Jesus Christ's death and resurrection took care of that. But we don't throw out all of God's laws. We don't get rid of what God calls us to do. I'm not saying that. So he emphasizes that in the next section. So let me read it to you. He's trying to get you to come back to what he's talking about not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to that what we have already attained. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I've often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies 
so that we will be like him on that glorious day. So Paul is absolutely convinced that these people are taking his words the wrong way. He's concerned. They're twisting what he said, and they're trying to make it say that they can live as they please and not according to the commands of Jesus. The new believers may have been thinking Paul was saying the law can be completely abandoned, opening the door for an unrestrained lifestyle or an isolated lifestyle just to avoid sin, neither of which he's talking about. We see that. People that live a reckless life as Christians or those that go into these sort of monastic lifestyles where they just get completely isolated away from the world, Paul's not recommending either. Paul goes to great effort to say he has not reached his goal and is still incomplete and imperfect. He's straining like an athlete at the end of a race to cross the line and be united with Jesus, to receive a crown, the crown which is the host of believers he has brought into heaven and a resurrected body. That's the crown. That's the prize he's looking for, those two things. He instructs the people to follow the pattern he talked about in his letter already and did not go back to their old ways. He then describes the difference between Christians who still love this world and those who are true citizens of heaven. Lovers of this world are enemies of the cross and will be destroyed by their passions for this world. Strong words. They love this world and they'll be destroyed by that passion. They have a gluttonous appetite for this world and a shameless pursuit for personal glory. And that is just America written in droves. True believers, on the other hand, await the return of Jesus, standing firm with a relentless determination to allow God to transform their heart, to help Jesus redeem mankind, and to live at some point in a resurrected, glorified body with Jesus. That's what the true believer is waiting for. He's not being consumed and gluttonously just gorging himself on the things of this world. And that's what Paul's saying. Don't do that. Don't go towards that. I'm not saying give up the law because it will lead you to those places. That's a bad place. Paul is challenging you to look at your life and decide if the things you do reflect the heart of a man committed to Jesus with a focus on heaven or the heart of a man compelled to indulge in the things of this world. Paul describes the ongoing straining and working out required to keep our focus. You can feel the never-ending pull of the comfort and recognition from this world. You can, just, you can just sense that he's just describing that. And we can. We feel it. It pulls on us. It pulls you away from Jesus. It's constantly doing that. It's what life in America is like, man. I'm telling you. And people think, well, if I just go live in Africa or something, it's no different. When you go there, the same temptations are there. They're just clothed in different colors, you know. But it pulls you, it draws you away. The world's constantly pulling you away. And you have to fight, you have to strain, as Paul's describing. You gotta strain for it. You have to lean into it, you have to press. You have to continue to work to try to push those desires out of your heart. So the challenge he's asking you is, what are you straining to achieve that is actually pulling you away from heaven? What are you driving for every day that you wake up and you press for and you work for and you strain, but it's actually not Jesus. And that thing you strain for is pulling you away from him. It's taking you in the wrong direction. What treasure are you moving towards that's pulling you away from heaven? When you get to heaven, will the treasure that you want be there? Or are you moving away from the treasure that you want? Is that what you're doing? When you die, will death pull you away from your treasure or will take you to your treasure. 
And that's what Paul's asking. So he concludes, Paul is again challenging you to look at who and what you're pursuing as a follower of Jesus. My stepfather was on a battleship near, uh, near Japan in World War II. And one night he felt this restlessness and he climbed out of his bunk to go read the Bible in the ship's library. Soon after he left his bunk, a torpedo hit the boat. The torpedo hit his bunk and all the men around him were killed. He would have died that night had he not been reading the Bible in the, church, in the library of the boat. If you don't study the Bible and know what it says, you can also easily be convinced you are living a Christian life that truly leads to heaven when in fact it's leading you to eternal death. How much time each day will you take to learn the Bible, to learn who Jesus is, to study and to know and understand what he's calling you to and to know that you're behind him, that you're following him. You're not following somebody else or pursuing some Christian culture that's taking you away from Jesus. What clues are in your heart that you can find in there to help you detect if your heart is truly pursuing Jesus? The heart of a man pursuing Jesus dreams of heaven and a resurrected life with him. That's the heart of a man.